Welcome. Wow, it feels like I'm joining old friends, my weekly get-together with my friends. Welcome back to the Fastest Known Podcast, talking with some of the most interesting people in the world, and this time we are indeed going around the world. I'm going to get to that in a second. But first, I'm just going to note, how do you get on the podcast? A quick little review Four weeks ago, we had Nancy East on. She wrote this amazing general email, just to info at fastknowntime.com, saying, I'm a mother of three. The fastest I ever move is in my minivan driving my kids around. And she set this FKT of 900 miles and raised $30,000 for SAR. I thought that was good. So she was an excellent guest. Three weeks ago, uh, we had Jack Kenzel, one of our regional editors, and he explained what it's like to be a regional editor. That was my idea also. I thought you'd like to know that. And then just last week, we had Lazarus Lake, a.k.a. Gary Cantrell, or is it the other way around? I get it confused. And, of course, Laz is extremely well-known as the originator of the Barclay and of the Backyard Ultras. But today, we're going to hear from someone who is re recommended by one of you. So I just want to call that out, that we do listen to your emails. So keep those cards and letters coming in, folks. This one came in from someone named uh, Jeff Whalen. And he wrote, I would like to nominate John Newman, FKT holder for Passes of Narrow Neck. New South Wales, Australia, to be a guest on the podcast. John is an Australian adventure explorer, has only been into running a short period. He has been exploring the Blue Mountains National Park in recent years, one of the largest national parks in the world. See, this is, this is how I'm doing the introduction. It's kind of easy. I just let other people do it for me. And so I thought I'd check with Jace Trimmer our regional editor for Australia and New Zealand, to say, hey, what do you think about this? And Jace wrote back, a good choice, Buzz. John Newman creates unique roots in the Blue Mountains and really does put thought into them. So there's our intro. Welcome to the podcast, John Newman. Howdy, Buzz. Well, uh, it's, uh, it's kind of late here, but it's 2 p.m. there. You are 18 hours ahead of us. And that's not all that's different. So you uh, have six FKTs, mostly New South Wales, which is the west side of Australia. It's, it's, let's call it Sydney, right? It's the state that Sydney is located in, is it not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the Blue Mountains are just a couple of hours drive from Sydney. Yeah. Right, straight west, basically. Yeah. Yep. So I've been to the Blue Mountains, so... You've got some explaining to do. The, <laughs> the Blue Mountains are odd. I mean, they're different. It's uh, They're very well known. Like the writer said, it's one of the largest national parks in the world. But you kind of look up there, you don't see a lot of mountains. So help us, I mean, pardon the Aussies listening to this. You already know this. But the rest of us would need you to explain what are the Blue Mountains? What are they like? Yeah, so they're not the sort of towering ice-covered mountains that some people might picture, but instead incredibly ancient sandstone cliffs, um, luscious green canyons and huge valleys. Um, and the way that they've formed, instead of looking like a peak popping out of the ground, it's, it's as if everything else has eroded away. So you have these dramatic valleys sort of 
sunken um, into the ground and they've been traversed for tens of thousands of years by um, Aboriginal people. We've got the Darug, Gundungurra and Darkenung um, groups moving through uh, the Blue Mountains and a lot of the stuff that I do is just trying to recreate their roots, um, track down the most sort of interesting or challenging options around, which often means like um, talking to bushwalkers or climbers and then just working out which ones are, are plausible for a sort of a beginner adventurer. Like I've only been, um, you know, using ropes, for example, for like a year and a half. So I've just kind of been working it out, but it's an absolute playground. Um, highly recommended for anyone who comes to Australia. Yeah. Okay. Well, you have, <clears throat> again, six FKTs. And the most recent one, which is quite recent, was on November 16th. And it's called Passes of Narrow Neck. And it's uh, the style is an open course. Of, we have loops. We have point-to-points, things like that. But an open course means you have to do certain things, but you can do any get to them any way you want. So a lot of times there'll be uh, summits. There might be five summits. Tag the five summits. Get between the summits any way you want. And you did that here. It's an open course. But you tagged, you linked up passes. But passes here means something different than they mean elsewhere. So help us understand <laughs> what it is <laughs> to do the passes of narrow neck. Okay, sure. Um, a lot of the bushwalking um, history in Australia starts with the Blue Mountains, and a lot of it is centered on narrow neck, which is, it looks sort of like an island floating in a sea of valleys, and it's surrounded by one to 200-meter cliffs on all sides. And from a distance, if you're in... Um, Katoomba or you're standing at a lookout, it just looks absolutely impenetrable, like impassable. But once you get up close, there are tiny little cracks in the cliffs. Like maybe you can sort of work your way up a gully, across a ledge, do a tiny bit of rock climbing. Um, and eventually, if you're incredibly thorough, you'll find that there are um, 14 different passes that can be done without super crazy vertical rock climbing. This is like within the, the realms of possibility for someone with a rope and um, good scrambling skills. And so um, these passes are sort of talked about in bushwalking circles. Um, and a lot of people kind of have the goal, the lifetime goal of doing every pass, um, but not many people have. And once I got comfortable doing the passes, one of my friends said, you should do them all in one day. Uh, and oh, he was sure. so <laughs> Why not? <laughs> yeah. He was so <laughs> confident that I could do it. Uh, but I, I was just like terrified because he planted the seed and my heart started pounding. And I was like, okay, I'm definitely going to have a go. But uh, I have to be prepared to bail um, if I get too fatigued because it's like, very, very high consequence. You know, some of the ledges are 30 centimeters wide. Some there's like seven meter vertical climbs in places, um, old ladders. It's basically all these ancient Aboriginal roots, but now um, they're, you know, they used to have tree trunks leaning up the climbs or, um, 
you know, all these sort of aids and they're all burned away because Australia, as you probably know, gets ravaged by fires every few years. <laughs> yeah. Well, that plus you have half the population of poisonous snakes in planet Earth. <laughs> Yeah, the but, other day when I was running along a ledge, I was literally running away from a snake chasing me on a one meter wide ledge. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, in a typical Aussie style, we're yucking it up, but uh, it's true. I mean, you Aussie Australia has incredible poisonous snakes. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so that that was the goal: um, do all the passes in one day. Uh, nobody's done it before that I know of, and so I I wanted a good very skilled um, collaborator. And this guy, Keith, has been teaching me things. He knows how to abseil. He's been, you know, exploring everywhere around the Blue Mountains for 20 or 30 years. A number of things he's done haven't been documented anywhere. He doesn't tell anyone. He doesn't brag. He's very humble. But um, he's kind of, he's been everywhere. Um, so he was the ideal guy to go with because he's got really good judgment and um, very, very skilled, and I trust his decision making. And he knows the routes. Yeah, yeah, we did. We recied every route in advance. Hi, by the way, just mentioning, if anyone's listening and they want to have a go, um, definitely do every route in advance carefully, slowly, with someone who knows what they're doing. Uh, yeah, you could easily, uh, you could easily die out there. Yeah. Okay, well, that's always a good tip. So just to uh, <clears throat> sort it out here, a pass is not uh, very high, either in altitude or elevation gain. It's like a weakness in a cliff band, you could say. And the cliff band often, I think, again, you should tell me, is in a canyon. So I've been up the Blue Mountains, and I was really in the canyoning or canyoneering, as we call it here. So I wanted to go up there and try some canyoning. And I dropped into something and, and you know, immediately got lost and, you know, just kept going and going until I figured out how to get back out and my, made my way back to my rental car. And the next day, I couldn't tell you what I had done. It's, <laughs> it's sort of odd terrain. Because like you said, you're not, instead of seeing these summits sticking up and you kind of point your finger and visually say, oh, I'm going to go there. You can't really see what you're doing until you get down in it. It's sort of a reverse topography. Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. I like that because um, if, as someone who's come from a background of just following obvious trails and GPXs, this is completely 180 degrees where you have to sort of learn the routes. Um, nothing's really obvious. You might be looking for like a little you know, a 40 centimeter gap here or, um, you know, where the rock changes color that suggests that a ledge might start. You begin, you begin to pick it all up, but, um, yeah, I guess we basically just think of a pass as, um, a way through a cliff line that seems unlikely. You know, ah, there you go. Yeah. There you go. A way through a cliff line. So it's a different use of the term. Uh, it's like a, a passage. You could yeah. say the pass is a passage, rather than a low point in a really high ridge line. Hmm. Yeah, occasionally they're formal, so there's going to be stairs and a railing, um, but most of the time they're just sort of obscure. Not many people do them, and it's like it's a way to get yeah through a cliff line or up, up a mountain. Yep. Okay. All right, so I encourage people listening to go on the website and type in the root name, 
passes of narrow neck. To read your lovely root description, and your partner also came in with a good comment. And one of the photos here is of you climbing down a tree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're fantastic. The like these roots are um, one of them's like an abandoned set of ladders, spikes up a tree. Um, yeah, and then a lot of them are sort of um, they're this questionable hardware that's placed by <laughs> amateur enthusiasts <laughs> so that they can um, recreate the old Aboriginal roots. Um, uh, yeah. Oh, and then, and a lot of climbing, a lot of climbers have forged their own little sort of um, pathways to reach sports climbing spots or trad climbing spots. And so you can take advantage of all of that when you're navigating your way around the, peninsula the climbers know how to get to all the beautiful spots so you sort of piggyback their their roots nice i like it so it's a real mix a real interesting mix some of it's uh free scrambling some of it's using just ancient anthro anthrogenetic debris as i tend to call it and some of it's using more modern climbing paths where you might have left a hand line or something like that and but the key thing is you got to figure it all out you really you can't just walk in there and fire it you have to learn it, understand the area, which is an overall theme of fastest known time. It's not exactly about the number. You know, we do record the numbers, but really it's about learning the area, learning this amazing natural world we live in. And so that's what you've done here in the Blue Mountains. You've become really immersed in the Blue Mountains. Yeah, yeah. Like the actual day pulling the trigger and doing the FKT was satisfying, but Honestly, the learning the area, exploring, chatting to people, learning skills, you know, that's the really satisfying part. I would highly recommend um, people have yeah, have a go at a similar approach, even if you're not trying to um, go for a record, just just sort of, yeah, picking up the skills, talking to the people. I've honestly met some fantastic adventurers and I've learned a lot about the Aboriginal history, and I even started learning Latin names of plants and all this nerdy stuff. Oh, oh, <laughs> there's actually something really interesting that happened in the last month. I learned how to model the topography because you can pull this digital elevation model data off the internet. It's all very nerdy. So you can make a topo topographic map, basically. But the data is really detailed, and you can make a topographic map accurate to within one or two meters. So we've been sort of, we model the mountain so it looks like a 3D image and that's where you can spot a potential passage or a pass, you know, up a, a cliffy area. Um, and then my mum said to me, she's like, oh, wouldn't this be useful for search and rescue? And I felt stupid for not having worked it out in advance. And I said, yeah, that's a <laughs> great idea. <laughs> so now I'm chatting to the um, search and rescue, volunteer rescue association rural fire service there's all these agencies and um we showed them you know where we used it and i was trying to think you know how do you convince people that it could be useful because people um you know rightfully believe they've got the sort of local expertise so i thought okay the way to do it would be like take the most iconic mountain in the area which is called mount solitary and ask them how many ways are there up and down mount solitary and the head of the um, search and rescue that I was chatting to thought there were four, but there are nine. 
and you can see them all within 10 minutes if you look at this topo model. So that's anyway, that's my latest passion is like working out how to do these maps to find even more amazing sort of off-track routes. Nice. <clears throat> nice. I, I get it. Well, you mentioned that amazing history. And, of course, in here in the uh, North America, we have terrific his, Native American history, which is coming more and more into the fore, by the way, uh, particularly out in the Southwest, where a lot of the Native Americans, many, you know, hundreds, hundreds of thousands are still happily, relatively speaking, living. But Aboriginal is very interesting because I believe that is the name of the people from Australia, but now it's become eponymous. So now Aboriginal just means the original inhabitants before invaders or colonists came. And so the the original name of the people there now is what Aboriginal people are called all over the world. But these people go way back. You said 10,000 years. You you're serious, 10,000 years of history. At least 40,000 years old. Okay. It's amazing. It's amazing. And I'm really curious about learning the pre-colonial athletic achievements of the um, of the Gundungurra and Darug people in the Blue Mountains. But it's kind of hard to find the history because, unfortunately, Australia did a pretty nasty number. Um, however, that's, that's um, a really fascinating area is to sort of learn what people were up to. And the fact that they pioneered some of these routes is amazing. Even if you're 200 metres away, you just look at some of these cliffs and think, no way, like absolutely no way. <laughs> <laughs> and then and then you follow the path and you're like, Jesus, like I'm actually, I'm halfway up this thing. Like it's amazing the routes that they pioneered. Imagine being the first person, you know, to follow these tiny ledges halfway up a cliff face. Like such, you know, sort of brave and... Um, yeah, such brave people, really. Yeah. Right, and they didn't train. They that was their life. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, like the back to that Naranek area. That was a meeting place, like a hub. So the three different um, tribes—I don't know the correct terminology—that I was describing used to all converge on there from hundreds of kilometers apart, and um, yeah, trade and do ceremonies and. Um, yes, yeah, so nice. that was like really practical. But they did also take unnecessarily athletic routes. So they must have been having fun, I think. Oh, interesting. So you can see that. They weren't yeah. just going from the water source to the water source. They were doing things that they didn't really have to do. They were just doing it anyway. Yeah, they were taking the scenic routes that were more fun to do, <laughs> <laughs> which I'm thankful for because I get to I get to travel on them now. Yeah. Wow, that's great. That's really good. Um, I'm out here in Moab, Utah right now as we're recording this. And with uh, about two miles from my house, there's a cliff band. This is real clean sandstone. It's not like the Blue Mountains. It's, it's very it's a sandstone that once was a sand dune. So it, it's largely featureless, doesn't have jointing or crack systems. It's like solidified sand dune. And I found a place where there's what we tend to call Moki steps, where there's just these tiny little foot and handholds to get up the cliff that the uh, what we used to call the Anasazi, now we call the ancestral Puebloans, cut in the face to uh, move. And what we've noticed here, and a, a really, really good mountaineer named David Roberts has written extensively about, they were really good 
<laughs> I mean, you look at what they're doing, and they weren't using sticky rubber climbing shoes. They don't have, <laughs> you know, Kern Mantle ropes, et cetera, et cetera. And they were getting a lot done. So they're they're very skilled. Yeah. Yep. Oh, for sure. I mean, it's it's a little similar in Australia where people are slowly starting to drop their ideas about how how sort of you know offen- offensive ideas about how basic the culture was and starting to realize like there's there's these distinct phases um in the development of art in in australia and the um you know they were making kilns and making different types of bread um doing all these farming techniques capturing fish you know sort of in in different ways and um Oh, it's it's good that people are slowly coming around to the idea that there was very sophisticated culture happening before, um, you know, before uh, the before British the arrived. prisoners before <laughs> the prisoners were shipped to Australia. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. But not to poo-poo all of the colonial history too, because some of that's actually really interesting and quite funny as well. Yeah. Yes, definitely. No, it's it's a fa- it's a fabulous country. Yeah, I've yeah. been there three times. Had a great time. I recommend down under to anybody, and of course, very sports oriented. I mean, <laughs> you guys are fanatics. It's uh, I, you know, we there's a sports culture in many places of the world, but I don't think anyone can keep up with the Aussies in terms of per capita participation, spectating, following sport and all kinds of sport, you know, from surfing to running to climbing, sailing. So it's a wonderful country to visit. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, the nation's basically sports mad, like the good athletes <laughs> are tra- on a sort of a godlike status. We turn to them for like political advice and, uh, you know, like everything, I guess. Um, no, I, I kind of like it because it's, if you take something seriously, then you can progress it and all that, all that kind of stuff. That's good. That's good. Right. Right. All the history there is fabulous, particularly in running. Of course, all, all the runners who've come out of Austria, distance runners who've come out of Austria and still are for that matter. Have you heard so, about um, Cliff Young, this, this runner? The, no. The, okay. So I don't know if they even used to call it an ultramarathon, but there was a race from Melbourne to Sydney, which would be about a thousand kilometers or 600 miles. And there are all these gun athletes that had a profile that were expected to win, but they got beaten by a farmer who was in his 60s or 70s who was wearing <laughs> boots, um, who's now like a national hero called Cliff Young. And he was so humble and down to earth, but he like he overtook them on maybe like the third, fourth or fifth day or something in the middle of the night because they were all sleeping. Um, <laughs> and they're like, so what was your strategy? And he's like, oh, you know, just keep running. Like, I don't even know if he took any sleeps at all. I love that guy. <laughs> yeah, what, what a history. And, yeah. Well, history in present day. So good on you, mate, as we sometimes say. So the back to the Blue Mountains, directly west of Sydney, which is, you know, the, the, the largest, it's not the capital. Canberra is the capital. But I think it is the largest city in the country. So Blues are very accessible. But... Even though they're quite accessible, it's, uh, it's it's not. Would you? I don't. When I was there, I did not think it was crowded at all. I think you could drop in places and not quite be by yourself. But there's a lot of wilderness in there. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing to me that you can drive, you know, an hour and a half from a city with millions of people, and you can, yeah, you can get to a landscape where you won't see anyone all day. Um, if you get off the sort of the main trails, 
and just poke around, you'll have it to yourself. Like when the lockdown was um, happening, I was allowed to stay within the local government area, which just happened to be the entire Blue Mountains. So absolutely no complaints. <laughs> and like I, I was able to run out the door and I, I did a 130K route all the way the entire around the entire Blue Mountains and then came back in the back door again. Um, and I saw, yeah, I saw like two people the entire time because I'd picked some fun, sort of fun single track that wasn't really um, that popular. Yeah. And, wow. And, and like some of it's really isolated as well where you like the Gross Valley. I don't know if you got there. Anyway, it's, it's the other major valley above the Blue Mountains. Um, it's almost completely untouched and you, you only have to go a few k's off the road and you won't see any signs of a human. Um, you feel like you're doing everything for the first time sort of thing. It's a spe- spectacular area. Um, nice. Nice. So someone's going to come visit. Hmm. hmm. Yeah. What should they do? See, to the north is Royal National Park, I think, which is pretty good. And then to the south, or is that to the south? I get it mixed up. Because to the south, there's that great beach run that you have to do on the tides. So what, where where should someone go if they're going to visit Australia? Um, you dropped out for a second. I'll just see if it's my connection. I can hear you now. Okay. So if somebody was coming from, um, if somebody was coming to Sydney and they just had one or two days, that tip you gave is fantastic. They could do the Great Ocean Walk, 25 kilometers or I don't know what that is, 16 miles along the coast. You wouldn't believe it's near Sydney. It's like moves through about five totally distinct, spectacular types of landscapes just along the coast. Um, but if they had a bit more time, yeah, I would say spend a few days in the, the in the Blue Mountains. You won't have to ask around much to find the best picks. I mean, we have something called the Grand Canyon which is a five-kilometer loop, and it's absolutely not through two thousand meter high. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we shouldn't have called it the Grand Canyon, but that is actually really, really beautiful. <laughs> um, and yeah, I mean, I would tell someone to run the length of Naranek, even just on the track, and just have a look at the lookouts. I mean, you can't go wrong in the Gross Valley um, or Wentworth Falls. There's a sort of a two hundred meter high waterfall, and in the early 1900s, they built an incredibly ambitious track just like straight across the cliff face called the National Pass. Um, yeah, actually, if you're going to do one thing, I would say go do National Pass. It'll reopen in about six months. They're just fixing it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, here's a tip for listeners. If you want to go to a particular place like Australia, go to the search routes button. You can pull it down from the main menu and don't type anything in the root name. Instead of in country, you just type in the name of the country, if you see what I mean. So then if you type in Australia, there is 118 routes. So that's a tip, a search tip. Don't type the root name in, just type the country. Or then you could go to state if you want to tighten it up a little bit. So your state, New South Wales. 45 routes there. So feel free to use the search routes feature on the homepage. It really help you find what I think is this worldwide bucket list of the best routes. That's what it really is. Um, you can go to Strava, uh, but then you have 
a billion routes, you know, just things between two people's mailboxes. So this is a nice worldwide bucket list. Yeah, down under. You guys, uh, you guys take this seriously. Running, ultra running, bushwhacking. Um, <laughs> and now you've kind of put it, put them together with this route where you combine a little bit of scrambling, a little bit of rope work, a little bit of running and hiking into that, that combination type route. Yeah. Yeah. Cause there's a, there's a few worlds and they, they're just starting to overlap a bit, I guess, because of the internet, everyone chatting. So you've got the bushwalkers, the canyoners, the climbers, the runners. Um, so yeah, the last two ro- routes that I posted, I think, um, are pretty spectacular and they're not inventions. They're just like linking together these sort of, um, iconic things that runners don't necessarily know about. I, I got really right. inspired actually just listening to the the podcast a lot because there's people like, um, I'm trying to think, Jason Hardrath. Hardrath. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, and the even the Tour de Flatirons guy the other day, that sounds fantastic. Yeah, just the sort of um, scrambling meets running culture is really fascinating and it's not particularly well developed in Australia in the running circles. So it's like really, um, really fun to work out how to blend the two things. Um, right. Good work. Yeah. We relate to that. Well, heck your route here, the passes of narrow neck. It's uh, well, uh, I'll start with metric 50 kilometers, but a vertical gain of 3,800 meters. That's a lot. So in terms of Imperial, that's over, um, 8,000 feet and only 32 miles. So that's, uh, there's a lot of vert in that route. Yeah. And like maybe half the route is flat too. So it's quite, <laughs> it comes in these little punchy, punchy sections. Yeah. <laughs> oh boy. I love it. Well, uh, happy springtime here, John. Uh, good for you. Of course, what does this mean? So you're coming into uh summer, really you've kind of started already. Is that, Does that mean it's too hot in that area? Does that mean you want to go down to Tassie? Or what's a good time of the year for the the Sydney area? Yeah, it's just starting to get too hot to want to do this stuff unless you are super keen. But because of La Nina, I think it's called, like a very strange weather event, it's it's like raining outside now and it's still perfect for me to do these big adventures. So, um, yeah, this year is, is an anomaly. And which is perfect for me because I'm going to be a dad soon. So I'm going bang, 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 ticking off my bucket list while the weather's good. <laughs> <laughs> well, you just said something I had no idea. It definitely is a La Nina year. I did not know that affected Australia. Oh, yeah. It's ideal, to be honest. I mean, I don't know what a, um, a scientist would say, but as a runner, you know, um, the weather is just lovely to go out and do big projects because often – you know, like last summer, it was getting up above, you know, 40 degrees Celsius. That's over 100 Fahrenheit. I don't know what it is. But it's, you know, when you start to just sort of feel faint after two and a half hours. So I'm going to take full advantage while the weather's good. Yeah. Gotcha. Interesting. Well, for us, it means a little, depending on where you are, a little moisture in the south-southeast and a little drier and warmer up in the uh, west and, and uh, across the Midwest. Into the Midwest, but what what are in the East? Okay, I did not know that. Australia is affected as well. Well, here's something you have mentioned. I got to ask you about this. So some, we talk about mixing the different skill sets, climbing, running, bushwalking. You are all about bridge. 
Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The play bridge, and you 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 credit this with helping you create and accomplish these routes. That's something I haven't heard before. So, what's up with bridge? You like it a lot, and how does it interface with your uh, adventuring? Yeah, I mentioned that because the that big route the other day we did required serious concentration for you know I think it took us sixteen to seventeen hours. And afterwards, I was wondering, I'm like, how did we even, how were we able to do that, given that we're not as, you know, well-versed in all this hardcore FKT stuff as everyone else? And we both play Bridge, and Bridge is a card game that, um, I guess it's like, um, sort of like chess with four people. You have a partner, and your your two opponents um, are partners with each other, and it's sort of, it's just incredibly fascinating and requires... Um, a lot of concentration and if you compete then it's sort of eight hours a day where you're trying not to make an error and I think that translates really well to um, yeah to this adventuring focus 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 focus. yeah right okay and and problem solving you know like um, I mean most people probably just think I'm a big nerd I guess I am focusing on a card game (laughs) for eight hours at a time because I was Mm -hmm. obsessed with competing for years um, but to me, the stakes were high, and I was trying to be rational when the stakes were high. And it's exactly the same thing out there in the mountains. You know, maybe you're halfway up a scramble, and you start to get terrified. I know I do. But then you just remind yourself to think it through, you know, like um, make sure you have a way to get back down. Don't don't make a panicky decision. It's just the same. It's the exact same um, process. Gotcha. Trying, to be, trying to be rational, you know, when you've – got intense sensations going on or whatever. So it's trained you mentally to stay focused and to think through the situation. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) that's the way I'm going to describe it in hindsight. Maybe I'm probably just like a pretty obsessive dude, you know, like, cause I loved the bridge and it was bridge, bridge, bridge for years. And then um, having ticked those boxes, I'm definitely switched across to um, adventuring now. When every so often I try to get fast as a runner, but I always get distracted and end up doing these big bushwhacking things. You know? <laughs> <laughs> right. You're running down that nice trail, but you see this tiny little path going off to the left. You say, wow, wonder where that goes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Six hours later, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's yeah. a certain personality type. Oh, well, oh, well. Um, so what's next? For you, John, with summer coming on, with La Nina, maybe you don't have to lay low. Are you going to keep going up there and trying the the bush projects? Or are you going to try some flat out running? What do you think? Oh, there's yeah. Well, I mean, I want to go do the Tour de Flatirons eventually. I'll, oh, really? Just, you want to come out to Boulder and the Tour de Flatirons? Yeah, hundred percent. That sounded really fun. Um, okay. Yeah, yeah, and then I want to go to the um, the Pyrenees and maybe do some stuff around the UTMB route area in Chamonix. But for the near future, like just um, do some more of the iconic Aussie routes. Like there's one called Three Peaks where you link up three mountains. Um, It's like 3,000 meters of gain in 18 kilometers. And you try and get back within 24 hours um, that'll be my goal. I think the fastest time is like 17 hours, but those guys are absolutely elite and they've done it a number of times. So I'll try for a, a slightly more humble, you know, approach. But um, <laughs> <laughs> Good idea. 
You're, you're being rational again. I appreciate that. Like you say, you bridge, you, you, you play the cards in your hand. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. I got a friend who's a gun runner and I feel like he's going to burst onto the ultra scene in a year or two. So I'm trying to encourage him to get into this adventuring stuff because he will absolutely set some fantastic records. But at this stage, he's just focusing on, you know, 10K marathon, blah, blah, you know. But right. I'll, I'll try to convince him down the line. Yeah. Right. You need someone to carry the rope bag. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Have you been to Tassie? Yeah, loved it. Yeah, absolutely mm-hmm. stunning. Yeah. Tarkine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of my friends lived there. Almost every Australian dreams about living there because it's – Oh. Yeah. It's a, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. It's just sort of, you know, we talk about Tasmania. Whether <laughs> <laughs> the nature is perfect and the – the landscape resembles, you know, some of the the mountains you might find in um, New Zealand, or it just feels, that, yeah. It reminded me of England. England, okay. Yep, yep. Reminded me a little bit of the Lakes District sometime. Yeah, yeah. The the Cradle Mountain Track. I've done that. That's really good. Oh, I can't wait to do that. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. That's stunning. And my friend lives in the South Island, so there's so much to do there. We did the root burn track in one day in winter. That was like our little, um, you know, intro to alpinism, which um, Aussies know nothing about. And um, there's so many fun adventures there. Have you ever done like mountain aspiring or any of the mountains over there? Nope. I've never carried gear. I have done the rope burn twice. By the way, listeners should know we just switched to New Zealand uh, in case people didn't follow that. <laughs> but you know, there's, uh, I think, nine classic tracks New Zealand, I've done all but one of those. So Milford, Roteburn, et cetera, Waikonogaraga. But nope, never done any mountaineering because I didn't want to schlep the gear over. <laughs> yep, sure. Or well, even those great walks, like you just said, are absolutely a knockout and so convenient, you know, with the beautiful huts and um, the well-beaten track, even though it's a stunning area and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Right. Australia, I mean, Australia, God, we've switched here. New Zealand is the same landmass, same landmass as Colorado. But last time I looked, they had 430 official huts. Colorado has, I think, 12. So they, it's, it's an amazing place to go for an adventure. Oh, yeah. Yep. I love how the, you know, the government, the whole country's on board. They really prioritize it. They call it tramping. And they've, you know, these just beautiful resources out there for anyone that wants to go visit. And if you don't have much money, you can have an amazing holiday there. It doesn't really cost anything. Yeah. Right. Once you get there. Once you get there, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, John, on that note, I will I'll leave you to it. Thanks for sharing your thoughts. This is great. What a great country. And I feel a little derelict. We had a guest from Australia. It's been well over a year. And from New Zealand, it's been over a year. So this is very good. Thanks for lighting it up. Thanks for sharing us your experience.